It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The course of human history is scarred by war. Though the swords and shields are rusted or confined to sandy coffins, School children learn of the heroics and defeats of warrior kings and their soldiers. Leonidas and his 300 Spartans, Achilles and Hector sparring at Troy, Alexander and Darius clashing at Gargamella. But in modern warfare, victory is less easy to define. Many wars end in frozen conflicts or an uneasy peace. Two decades after the war on terror began, Iraq and Afghanistan are still plagued by violence. Tensions in the Balkans are flaring again. Russia seeks to expand its sphere of influence and fragile peace arrangements are fraying in a new era of east-west tension. In Ukraine, despite the concerted support of the liberal democracies, the prospect of all-out success for either side looks elusive. I sometimes reflect as a journalist who covered a number of these conflicts since 1990 that it's a lot harder to look back on one which ended conclusively than those which produced a settled outcome. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, what does it mean to win a war today? My guest is the historian Philip Bobbitt. He's one of America's leading constitutional scholars, and author of 10 books on international security and military strategy. He teaches at Columbia, Yale and Texas law schools. For years, he was embedded in Washington, where he advised every president from Jimmy Carter to Bill Clinton. He was counsel to the Senate Committee on the Iran-Contra Affair and has served on the National Security Council. The White House is especially familiar ground for Bobbitt. His uncle was America's 36th president, Lyndon Johnson. Philip Bobbitt, welcome to The Economist Asks. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you, Anne. Now, you've worked in or advised three branches of the U.S. government and for several presidential administrations. How would you rate President Biden's foreign and security policy today? And what's the balance that you think he's trying to strike? Well, you probably ought to think that it's too soon to say. His biggest challenges are ahead of him in Ukraine and China. And, of course, how to re-engage our alliances after four years of Donald Trump. I think the biggest challenge that he faces is one that he recognizes, which is he's got to change our institutional attitudes about the problems we face. We can't go on with the same playbook. The world has changed so dramatically in the last couple of decades. Now, Biden, because he's been in Washington so long, so experienced, might be thought to be the worst person to do that, that he'd be mired in all the habits. But I'm inclined to think that he'll be good at reforming and re-engaging the bureaucracy 
And that's the toughest part of change. The Biden administration will see the killing of Ayman al-Zawahiri, the leader of al-Qaeda, as a success. How significant do you think his death is to America's war on terror? That's a complex uh, event. On the one hand, it's telling, I'm afraid, that the titular head of al-Qaeda could be living openly with the protection of the Taliban regime. That's completely contrary to their undertakings to us. It realizes some of our worst fears about Afghanistan becoming a petri dish again for all these terrorist groups. On the other hand, it also shows that we have the intelligence assets and the reach to stop a person like that. I think the most important thing to bear in mind is that al-Qaeda and groups with which it is affiliated, sometimes at odds with, are global, they are decentralized, and so getting rid of a key decision-maker doesn't deal the death blow to these organizations. It may impede them for a while, but it's not like the sort of industrial nation-state terrorists of the 20th century, which were so hierarchical, sort of monocellular. This is a different organization altogether. So in that case, how important do you think it was to do this at all? I know you have defended the use of lethal drones strategically. Zawahiri was killed by two missiles fired from a drone. Tell me a bit about the moral and maybe the legal trade-offs as, as you see them there. Well, I don't know that there's an insurmountable legal problem because Zawahiri was one of the architects of an attack on the United States that killed 3,000 Americans. They at first denied this, but eventually became rather proud of it. So I don't think there's much question that he put himself in the crosshairs of, of the Americans. On a moral basis, I think that if you stand by because things are too complex, they're too difficult logistically, they're almost impossible diplomatically if you're striking in another country, I think if you just stand by and let these groups operate unhindered, then you have a moral obligation to the people that they kill. And to prevent that, I think the use of lethal force is, from a moral point of view, justified. That brings us to the war on terror and that period which began after 9-11, but what has happened in that since. If the aim was to degrade al-Qaeda and ultimately, as you say, say, well, if you attack the United States, we will come after you with our full force. But in the end, its leaders can be killed now using drones without having to put boots on the ground. A lot of people might wonder what all those interventions were for and all those lives that were lost, both, of course, among those engaging for the Western powers and and those killed collaterally on the ground. How do you see that balance? Well, the interventions aren't all the same. We went into Afghanistan to try to stop further attacks from coming. Afghanistan had become a nest of training camps for recruitment from all over the world, and I think that was successful. I myself was surprised that we didn't have a major attack after 9-11, not within six months, not within six years, not within 20 years. So I think that intervention, whatever happened subsequent with respect to the regime in Kabul and our efforts to try to support that regime, the intervention to stop Afghanistan being a launching pad for our attacks against us, I think was a success. The intervention in Iraq, I don't think had much to do with terrorist groups. I was never persuaded at the time or since that Saddam Hussein had anything to do with the 9-11 attacks That was a a much more conventional problem. That was a a problem begun when 
Saddam Hussein invaded and annexed another state, a member of the United Nations. And when he was pushed out of Kuwait, he undertook a series of obligations for a ceasefire agreement. He violated them systematically over a long period of time. That was really not a terror problem, unless you want to say that Saddam Hussein was running a state of terror and that such states destabilized the international system. Let's uh, stay on Afghanistan for a moment because the one-year anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal is coming up. You've called that a humiliating retreat. But why did it happen in the way that it did? And if you're broadly, as I understand it, positive about the intervention in Afghanistan, military intervention led, of course, by America in the coalition, what do you think was really achieved if it ended, besides the terror point that you have covered A lot of people are probably looking at this anniversary and thinking this does look like an anniversary of a failure. Well, I think the withdrawal was a failure. But the idea that the vast sums of money we spent trying to stabilize Afghanistan, trying to support even a nascent democracy there, the first elections, I think that it's far too soon to say that those operations were a failure. Something has happened to Afghan society besides its immense suffering. The door has been opened, perhaps just a bit, But millions of people in that country have seen a future that has now been shut off from them. I don't think they'll forget. Having said that, I think the reason why we withdrew is twofold. First of all, we withdrew because the American people were sick of it. They just wouldn't support it anymore. And in a democracy, if you can't bring along the public, whatever your policies abroad are, they're doomed. Second... In the aftermath of the 2020 treaty negotiated by President Trump, which was, as his own commanders said, a surrender agreement, which thousands of Taliban prisoners were uh, freed, in which we promised to leave. In the backwash of that, I think it was very difficult for the new administration to reverse gears. Hang on a minute. I mean, are you really saying that there's no way around the speed and chaos of that withdrawal. I know you spend a lot of time around here in Britain, around the foreign and defence policy establishment, and it won't come as news to you that many allies, including those at the most senior levels, were very unhappy about the way that that happened. So yes, you could say, well, we need to withdraw because we promised the American people we would. But I guess I'm just pushing you a bit. Are you letting the administration off a little lightly on the conduct of that? And what has been a rather terrible consequence for so many people in Afghanistan? Well, as a general matter, I try not to criticize the administration when I'm overseas. But I thought you'd more or less closed off that option for me when you began by saying that I called it a humiliating defeat. I think it was. If I can contribute anything to this complex debate, it is to draw attention to the phenomenon that sometimes the momentum of past attempts simply washes over a success. I think by the time the Biden administration withdrew troops, we had found that spot. We'd found a deployment somewhere between 2,500 and 4,500 troops. There had been no casualties taken by American forces in the preceding year. We found just the right support for Afghan forces, but it was too late. We found the solution too late. The public had become so sick of it that even though I think we finally had found a way to sustain our involvement there. It was early on in a presidential tenure, wasn't it? I mean, if Joe Biden had said, to your point, we have found this balance, let us try this and we will, I promise you, be out in a year 
some damage could have been avoided? I don't know. As you mentioned at the outset, I spent a lot of my life in Washington, and it's always tempting to second-guess decisions. I, I wasn't a part of, I wasn't uh, aware of, the, of all the papers. Just standing outside, I think it was, and as I wrote at the time, a mistake. Let's look to the future of al-Qaeda. How should the administration, indeed other Western leaders, be considering the threat? You're the author of a lot of writing on the post-9-11 threat. And how do you think it's changed? To what extent has it changed more than that kind of terror infrastructure of the 1990s? And what are the lessons if we're looking to prevention in the 2020s? Well, you often are the beneficiary in one area of public policy of successes in another. The drawing together of the alliance in reaction to the Russian invasion of Ukraine will have many positive spillover effects, including with respect to wars against terror. Those are global struggles. They are not defined by a particular insurgent group trying to seize power in a single society. And so global cooperation is an essential. I think that the alliance is closer today than it was at any time since 9-11, and therefore that's the hopeful sign. The negative sign is that I don't think many people involved in the public debate, including journalists and thinkers, quite appreciate the deep changes in the nature of the state that are underway. These are what gave birth to al-Qaeda, and al-Qaeda will also accelerate those changes. States that saw their security problems pretty much as we saw them before the Second World War, I think are going to be blindsided as we were on 9-11. Looking back at your time when you were serving at the National Security Council and in other security advisory roles in government, when did you feel the strain of those decisions? Did anything shock or disturb you, throw you off balance? Well, I wasn't taking these decisions. I was just a very minor, minor cog in a complex wheel. When a book of mine was published in 2008, I was scheduled to go on CNN. And just an hour before the interview, the producer called and said, I'm sorry, the, the interview's off. I said, well, that's understandable. Fast-moving events. I've probably been pushed off for some reason. She said, oh, no, it wasn't that. She said, we checked with the White House. This would have been the Bush George W. Bush administration, we checked with the White House, and they said that while in the Clinton administration your advice was often taken, you had in fact never served uh, on the National Security Council, and implying that sort of padded my resume, and we didn't want to take a chance on that, so we canceled the interview. <laughs> I said, call them back. Tell them I worked there for two years, and my advice was never taken. It was a bunch of forget who was on the National Security Council's <laughs> Quite some forgetfulness. But that does actually make me curious as to how different administrations feel when you're in that part. They, as you say, is an advisor, but you are in the room. You have access to those in the war room. Is there something about the American state that when push comes to shove, it's quite similar no matter who is in power or not? I think this would be something that would really interest me if I could be a fly on the wall, which for good reasons as a journalist, they would not let me be. I'm not sure I would have answered that question the same way six years ago. What struck me from the time I first went to Washington, really as a very, very young man, was how the personality of the president affected everything in the bureaucracy. People who never met the president, 
began adopting habits. So when President Clinton came into office, just in a few weeks, people started coming late to meetings <laughs> because he would do that. It just sort of spread throughout the bureaucracy. And so I thought in those days that a president's habits, his fundamental presuppositions could carry the bureaucracy. And, and I thought, as you implied, that was a feature of the system. Now I think, after four years of Donald Trump, that I exaggerated that, that there is a deep commitment on the part of military, diplomatic, and civil officials to the Constitution, and that if you have a president who wants to fundamentally traduce that commitment, they won't stand for it. They'll find ways to block it at every turn. And you saw this in the aftermath of, of January the 6th, when all the major players, the judiciary, members of Congress, and members of the, even of the White House staff, simply would not follow orders. And thank goodness for that. You are the nephew of Lyndon Johnson, the former president, president during the Vietnam War. And indeed, you spent some time, I think, in the White House when your uncle was in office, actually living in, in the White House. So your perspective on this isn't only through your academic and legal expertise. How does it change the way that you look at presidencies? Having been so severely critical just now of Donald Trump, but I think on the whole it makes you more sympathetic to them. You have some sense of the immense pressures they face, the numbers and complexity of decisions. I think President Johnson was a very unusual, very remarkable figure because he came out of almost 30 years in the Congress. I think that his legislative achievements as president are things that will be a very bright star in the history of the post-war period. I have in mind not just Medicare, Medicaid, Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the first Federal Aid Education Act, but also things like the National Endowment for the Arts, the change in our immigration laws that have so transformed the face of, of America. Do you think his Vietnam record is hung like a millstone around his neck for a Maybe. lot of Maybe. I think that's mainly my generation. I've never worried about President Johnson's star. I think when we die off, it will irresistibly rise. Now, of course, I'm prejudiced. I loved him very much. I was to say, what were your personal relations with him like? <laughs> well, uh, they were marked by his efforts, which I think he felt with many, many people, that he always wanted to do something for you. He wanted to be the person who could help you in some way. And that's not easy with a teenage boy, you know. A teenage boy in the White House, I suppose. And this is not quite skateboarding down the corridors, but something like that. <laughs> something like that. Let's turn to Ukraine and the war in Europe and, of course, having such vast effects beyond Europe on the US and on the international order. You've written a lot about the new realities of 21st century warfare. It's been six months since Vladimir Putin invaded the country. What do you now think that realistically victory could look like for Ukraine? Victory for Ukraine would be the achievement of their war aim. I used to give the opening lecture at the National Defense University, and I would ask this large audience of young generals and colonels, how many of you think that victory in warfare is the defeat of the enemy? And they'd almost all say yes. And I'd say, no, that's victory in football, or maybe that's victory in chess. But victory in warfare is the achievement of the war aim. You can do immense damage to your enemy and to his society and still be frustrated at achieving your war aim. As I understand it, 
The war aim of the Ukrainians is to expel Russia from every square inch of territory that was guaranteed by the Russians and the Americans in the Budapest Agreement. Now, that may change. Their war aim may become more modest when they feel they can't endure further suffering and mass destruction. But right now, and the Biden administration has been very forthright about this, this is to be determined by the Ukrainians themselves. So that's what victory would look like. I'm here to disagree with you. Please. I absolutely understand the necessity of saying this is what the Ukrainians want. The Ukrainians will get as backing from the West and obviously with the biggest lift from the US. But it seems hard to credit that given that now this conflict is so significant, so much is at stake also for the West or the supporters of liberal democracy and for America, that to say this policy of what the war aim is will solely be what President Zelensky or what Kiev at any point wants feels to me unrealistic. And I wonder whether you have any sort of sense of what I'm saying, that perhaps there will be a more modest war aim agreed in order to bring it to a conclusion. Perhaps there will be. But the key phrase there is agreed. I don't think that those states trying to aid Ukraine in this fight ought to or ought to be seen as enforcing some kind of negotiated peace on the Ukrainians. I think that in the long run would weaken us as an alliance and would make the states that have just joined the alliance, like Sweden and Finland, think twice about just how much of a commitment their allies are prepared to make. But that does seem to be the position of some players, notably the French government, possibly the German government, as much as one could read it, because it tends to, to shift around. And this paper is particularly strongly supportive of Ukraine and its war aims. But you know, we are reporting and analysis has also reflected that it is hard to see in the end how, say, Crimea, which has been on the Russian grip now for some time, could revert to full control from Kiev. It is hard to see, but it won't be decided, I think, in Brussels with the North Atlantic Council. It will be decided on the battlefield in Ukraine. With strong advice, no doubt, from the U.S. With strong advice, perhaps, and I hope helpful advice and I hope uh, generous arms, but the positions of the French and German governments, which I suspect are fluid, will be determined in the long run by what happens on the battlefield. If the Ukrainians continue to have a success, then they'll find more support. If it looks as though they're simply going to be destroyed, then those states that value them and want them to succeed will be urging them to have some kind of ceasefire. And how do you assess what's happening on the battlefield? Well, again, I think you have to ask yourself, what is Moscow's war aim? Is it to incorporate Luhansk and Donetsk? Is it to get a land bridge to Crimea? Is it to take the entire southern perimeter on the Black Sea all the way to Odessa? Or is it something much grander than that, which is to establish Russia as a geopolitical player that can act with unrestricted freedom to invade its neighbors and make them do its bidding? And if that's the aim, as I think it is, then I think things are not going well at all for the Russians. However much they may be able to rain down destruction on Ukrainians, the admission into the Atlantic alliance of Finland and Sweden is much bigger news. It's an historic step. 
and it would never have been taken <laughs> if Vladimir Putin had not decided to press his claims on Ukraine. President Putin's gift to NATO was... <laughs> yeah, something like that. At what point do you think Vladimir Putin would stop the war? I think a dramatic depletion of the military manpower with which he began, I think if he faced some kind of military pressure within his own military, I think that would give him pause. The risk of tactical nuclear attack does appear to be rising as Russia struggles in the south of Ukraine, which is to your point and to your assessment of the way the war is going. And it is possible that the claim that the Donbass is fully Russian could be used from Moscow's perspective, I hasten to add only from Moscow's perspective, to say, well, it's actually Ukrainian forces who are invading us, as inverted as that sounds. As a historian of nuclear strategy, how worried are you about this conflict going nuclear? The consequences of the use of nuclear weapons for the first time since the end of the Second World War have got to put all of us on alert. They would be a real game changer for the international order. Right now, it's hard to see how that would happen. The amount of destruction that Russia is able to impose on the Ukrainian population is already devastating. The use of tactical nuclear weapons to interpose an overwhelming conventional threat doesn't face the Russians. It's difficult to see, other than just as a diplomatic bluff, quite what role a nuclear attack would play in Russian planning. So, yes, I'm concerned, but I'm sort of an edgy person, and I'm always, I'm always a little concerned when nuclear weapons begin to enter the discussion. To what extent do you call Vladimir Putin's nuclear bluff? Because there are those who are perhaps even more edgy than you are who would say you have to accept this is a nuclear power. We don't know how tethered to reality he is. He may be backed into a corner. He may be desperate. And you do have to factor that in. Well, I think you do. I, I think the Americans have handled that well by being so sensitive to it. As you know, the scheduled testing of uh, an ICBM was canceled. The Americans, from the president on down, have given the Russians repeated assurances that we are not threatening Russia itself, that we will not use American troops against Russian troops, and above all, that our nuclear weapons are not on alert and that we can see no sensible use of them. Now, no one can rule out some dramatic change, but it would take a dramatic change. It's very hard to see how a Russian president would want to use these weapons on the battlefield in the situation in which he finds himself today. Let us turn our attention to Taiwan. America clearly very strongly focused there's tensions between the island and China have been increasing. How seriously do you take a threat of conflict between Taiwan and China? And is this part of a scary new world, really, in which there are likely to be these ongoing threats of different national or semi-national territories, big ones threatening smaller ones? Well, this uh, is not particularly new. The argument you gave a few minutes ago for the incorporation of uh, Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine is very similar to the German argument about the Sudetenland. The capture of ethnic groups or the vindication of historic claims has been for a very long time a cause of warfare and a cause of friction among, among states. Taiwan is a, almost a unique problem, however, because of its relationship to China. Whether or not the Chinese claim to the integrity of their own state, which I believe is the way they view the issue, their desire to show their own 
people that they will not be fractionalized and that they won't be intimidated by the Americans. Whether or not that would actually lead them to an armed conflict is, is the question of the hour. It's hard to think that seeking a third term, President Xi would find opening up a conflict with Taiwan as the way to achieve that. It might make him very popular in the short run, as I gather the incorporation of Taiwan into China is popular with the Chinese people. But to embroil this state that has come so far so fast in a conflict with virtually all of its neighbors, I think we'll give them pause. How do you think we'll come to define 21st century warfare? Well, you raised some points earlier about the use of high-technology weapons like drones, changing the nature of warfare. Warfare in Ukraine right now looks very much like almost the kind of conventional conflicts that dominated the 20th century. However, if you expand the aperture, as it were, you see tactics that, while they don't involve the violence of warfare, press war aims. And I have in mind the economic sanctions that the West has organized against Russia, the use of markets, the SWIFT system for transfer of funds, for example, to bring pressure on Russia. I think that's part of what the 21st century will see. So broadening of tactics, obviously more uh, cyber attacks, the holding hostage of complex societies that depend upon supply chains for their technology. These are things that will reshape uh, warfare in the 21st century. Fundamentally, I believe that while wars and changes in warfare shape states, that the reverse is also true. And if we are moving into a new era constitutionally with respect to states, the states are becoming more global, more integrated into other economies, their populations are becoming more diverse, their information sources are becoming themselves more fissured, those changes will have an effect on warfare because they'll change the state. They'll change what the state is prepared to fight for, what weapons it has at its disposal, and how it organizes its values and alliances. The U.S. Constitution, in which you're also an, an expert and have had many advisory roles where the Constitution butts up against real-world problems, but it feels like particularly testing times for interpretations of the law in politics. What kind of shape do you think the grand old document is in, in 2022? Well, the American Constitution puts at its center decisions that are taken out of some kind of fidelity to its values. It's a very common thing in America to hear two people who don't agree on anything uh, both try to outdo each other in their devotion to the Constitution. The challenges the American Constitution faces are not unique to us, although we have an unusual constitutional system, because they reflect the changes in the nature of the state I was alluding to earlier. I'll give you one example that concerns me, but that I think is part of the, this process of change and that cannot be completely averted. The United States has been for a long time the only state that I'm aware of that has what you might call local option capital punishment. That is, in a famous case, Furman versus Georgia, the Supreme Court outlawed capital punishment. And then a couple of years later, in Greg versus Georgia, allowed it to be a matter of state law. So some states have capital punishment, other states don't. There's not a uniform constitutional rule. That's a reversal or a step back from a century-long effort to make our constitutional rules uniform so that if you're arrested for shoplifting in 
<laughs> Austin, Texas, you're read the same Miranda rights as if you're arrested for uh, drunken driving in New York City. And this is true with respect to not just criminal process, but civil and political rights. Now, I think we're going in the other direction. I mentioned capital punishment. The Dobbs case, which came down last month, does this for abortion, whereas hitherto, the restraints states could put on abortions were very, very tightly held around the state. Now, it's up to each individual state to decide the degree to which it wants to restrict access to abortions. I'll just chip in there if I could. We actually were talking to Ted Cruz on this podcast very recently, and of course he was defending that principle and saying that is right. It's the big argument, isn't it? It's the big dual carriageway argument. Through the middle of this discussion, people are obviously going to passionately disagree on either side of it. But as you see that tendency, I'm intuiting that you don't think this is a good thing that more key rights are going back to the States. But there is a case for it, isn't there? Let's look at it from sort of the micro and macro level. With respect to abortion rights and the Dobbs decision, in which I'm cited by the majority, I think it was a mistake. I think that there are sound arguments. You may not find them in the original Roe versus Wade opinion, but there are very sound constitutional arguments that should restrain the states uniformly from compromising a, a woman's right to choose whether to carry to term. But on the larger picture, I think this is to be expected and it's irresistible. I mentioned capital punishment and abortion, but I could also have mentioned narcotics. I could have mentioned uh, pornography. I think in all these areas, you're going to see power devolving to the states constitutionally. Now, if you overlay that with the demographic fissuring of the states, where more and more so-called blue states, coastal states, uh, wealthier, more populous states have different political values from a more numerous but less populous South and, and Midwest, you really have to be concerned about the state itself fissuring and losing that common sense of what holds us together. We are not bound by allegiance to a monarch. We are bound by allegiance to values that we believe we all share. When a society can't talk to itself because it has so little in common with its fellow citizens, when states become purer and hostile to their neighboring states, the basis for our constitutional unity begins to collapse. You're in a rather rare position that you have an honorary knighthood from the Queen, which is a very rare accolade for someone who is principally resident outside the US, is an American citizen like yourself in this case. And it turns out there's a quirk to this. Americans can't use the title, which seems a bit odd. Uh, what was your reaction to receiving the honour, <laughs> with or without the title? Well, I was very flattered. I think I was given this wonderful honour as a kind of placeholder for those Americans, and they number in the hundreds of millions, who feel great sympathy with and great affection for Britain. There is a sympathy that underlies all our relations. And you can't work very long in security affairs and diplomacy or intelligence without seeing how strong that is. Last thought, you frequently infuse poetry into your books and you've established the biennial Rebecca Johnson Bobbitt Prize in honour of your mother. It is a $10,000 prize awarded by the Library of Congress. What is the power of poetry for you, and which poet are you going to recommend that we turn to in difficult times? Feel free to quote. 
Oh, wow. Now, you see, I've been pontificating about the future of the state and American constitutionalism and Ukraine and Taiwan, all these questions. Now you say, what poet would I recommend? And I'm at a complete loss for words. Now, that's a difficult question. There are Eastern Europeans poets. Uh, it's a big name, Herbert, Czesław uh, Miosz, Miroslav Holub, that are very valuable to read at this juncture in our political evolution. They saw the breakup after World War II. They saw the breakup at the fall of the wall. They were very cultured people, but they had a detachment from the West that gave them a very valuable perspective. So I would start there. That is a great recommendation to turn back a few years, not too long, but to the poetry of the old Eastern Central Europe. Philip Bobbitt, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Anne. Thank you so much. And do let us know what poetry you like to turn to in these difficult days. I would recommend Bertolt Brecht, written in his exile from Nazi Germany, and it begins, really, I live in dark times. And it asks generations to look more kindly on each other, bearing in mind their historical tribulations. It really is worth a read or a listen. You can write to us with your choices at podcasts at economist.com, or you can tweet us at The Economist. To understand how modern wars are fought, do head over to our website, where you'll find five book recommendations selected by Shashank Joshi, our defence editor. His picks are part of The Economist Reads, our collection of tomes and titles that help make sense of the world. There are some brilliant choices there, whether you're heading on vacation or looking for company on the commute. Of course, becoming a subscriber to The Economist is the best way to stay plugged into the events shaping the world. Take advantage of our special introductory offer for listeners and visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.